If you do have your Bibles, let's go back to the book of Numbers where we've been in chapter 20, where we left off there and we'll continue forward. We went down last time in Numbers chapter 20 as far as verse 13. And at this point, as we come to Numbers chapter 20, we're really sort of coming to the uh, probably last year or so segment of time of the children of Israel's journey through the wilderness as they make their way toward the uh, edge of the promised land. And after going through about a 38-year period or so at this far, remember for 40 years, uh, they were sort of destined to wander in the wilderness because of their unbelief and their unwillingness to obey the Lord and go into the land initially until the entire older generation would die off. And we're beginning to see that. We saw even last time, remember, that Miriam, this very central figure, the sister of Moses, uh, we saw chapter 20, verse 1, where the end of her life has come to pass now. We're told they're now back at Kadesh, which is exactly really where, in a sense, they started once before and had failed. And we talked about how it's so interesting how they had spent all those years wandering around in the wilderness and God brought them back to the exact place where they had been at the beginning. And so often that can unfortunately Fortunately, be the case with us. You know, we can waste years wandering, but you know, God's so gracious; He always always brings us back to where we need to be once again. And sometimes, if we, uh, you know, need to learn some lessons, He'll let us journey around, and He'll graciously preserve us through the process, and then bring us right back to where we need to be once again. So they're back now, very close to the border of the Promised Land. Miriam has died. Uh, and at this point, they're now seeking to make an endeavor to go up and actually enter into the promised land, we'll see. Uh, notice chapter 20, verse 14. Let's pick it up where we left off there. It says, Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Remember, Edom was basically the descendants of Esau. If you remember from the book of Genesis, you had Jacob and Esau. Edom were the descendants uh, of Esau. So Moses now sends messengers over to the king of Edom at this time, saying to them, verse 14, thus says your brother Israel. Now take notice, he says your brother Israel, because technically in a sense, uh, the same blood was running through their veins. Uh, these were the descendants of Esau. Uh, Jacob uh, perpetuated the nation of Israel. But in a sense, there's sort of a, a, a kinship in the sense that the same blood did run through their veins uh, as a people in some senses. And so this is sort of almost a, a cousin-like relationship, this uh, people of Edom and Moses and the children of Israel. So uh, they say, thus says your brother Israel, and they request permission to pass through the territory of Edom. They now want to go northeast, if you would, up around that side from the uh, Red Sea, up around the northeastern side of the Dead Sea, and then want to come in. Uh, to the land of Canaan in that direction. So they say, you know all the hardship that has befallen us. Verse 15, how our fathers went down into Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. Verse 16, and when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. And now here we are in Kadesh, a city, notice, on the edge 
of your borders. So they just briefly recount their history uh, with them. It seems there would be some awareness or acquaintance among the people of Edom regarding the nation of Israel at this point in time, and they sort of remind them of those things. And then their request there, Moses again as a leader, wisely here, he's using diplomacy. Uh, he's using wisdom here. He says, verse 17, please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. Now, we'll see this mentioned a few times, the king's highway, which is basically a, a route that would run from on the Gulf of Aqaba straight up into the Damascus area so uh, this was a common travel route and really it would be a lot more straight shot and a much shorter way to take the King's Highway which went through the area we'll see of uh, Edom as well as through the area uh, of some other people groups as well so they're saying look uh, we won't take any food we're not going to in any way mess with your fields we're not looking to drink water from your wells all we're asking please is just you know just simply Simple, easy permission to just have access to just go through your land. I mean, and, you know, just two million of us. It'll just take a few minutes. We'll get an easy pass lane. You know, just just two million people. We just, we'll go right through the King's Highway. We we won't touch anything. He says we won't turn aside. Notice to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. So he makes a request, asking for permission to travel on the King's Highway, not turning to the right or turning to the left, but just passing straight through on the king's highway verse 18 and Edom's response the king of Edom came back saying notice you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with the sword so not exactly a, a real friendly response there the hospitality center in Edom wasn't the nicest place apparently so that the request isn't received too well and not only just not received well they actually make a threat against them they say to them not only can you not have access but they directly come out and say look and if you endeavor to do anything of the sort uh, we'll come out against you with the sword that was a threat of war that they would come out against them and again there's this almost as if this instant animosity and resistance comes against them Verse 19, so the children of Israel said to him, Moses tries again, he again tries diplomacy here. He says, look, we will go by the highway and if I or my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. So he says, look, we'll even pay for the water. Uh, not only will we, you know, do, but we're actually willing to pay if we touch anything or drink anything, then I'll pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. And then he said to him again, verse 20, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them. So now they actually come out and make a show of force. They actually come out to where they're at. Uh, against them with many men and with a strong hand they show a strong military presence to sort of indicate that they'll attack if they endeavor to do this verse 21 thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory so Israel notice turned away from him the idea is that Moses after using uh, diplomacy and wisdom realized look it's pretty obvious uh, that uh, there's not going to be a peaceful response here it's pretty obvious here there's no desire for cooperation so Moses shows wisdom here notice when he realizes there's no interest in peace or cooperation he just averts conflict 
And rather than push the issue and say, no, instead he just backs off. It says there, verse 21, they just turned away. And again, God did not call them to engage in this. They just realized there's not cooperation, there's not interest, and they turn away, which shows wisdom in, in many senses. Now, here's what's quite interesting. If you think about it, you remember the whole story of Jacob and Esau and the incredible tension that was there. Remember the book of Genesis when we studied it between these uh, two brothers and, and how they, these two were always at one another and ultimately Jacob stole Esau's birthright. And I mean, Esau literally just had real hatred and animosity towards his brother. Well, again, these are the descendants of Esau. And, and isn't this quite interesting? Now, it's been some 500 years since that whole family dysfunctional kind of tension thing and you want to talk about a long-standing root of bitterness? Here's 500 years later, and there's still dysfunction in the family. There's still tension. There's still animosity between them. Boy, isn't it not amazing how stubborn and bitter people can be that here now their descendants, generations and generations later, it seems there's this still this animosity, and the Edomites are perpetual enemies of Israel. All throughout history, ultimately they will even do things to seek to harm and to come against Israel. The you know the the prophet Obadiah is one book d dedicated to God, ultimately even having to judge the people of Edom because of their severe mistreatment and their endeavors to come against Israel. And Edom or Esau, I guess I should better say, especially from the stories of Esau, is always a picture of the flesh. Remember, he was a man who basically sold his birthright for just a, 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 a bowl full of pottage or stew. He was a man who lived after carnal desires and he would take the instant gratification to satisfy his hunger and stomach and pass up something as very important as a birthright, which meant the, the head of the home and the, the spiritual privileges to be the leader in the family. And he was a man, Esau, who pictured the flesh living after the cravings and the desires of the flesh. So it's very interesting here as we see this resistance in this process. There's something here that's wonderful as well, I think, that's a picture for us, is that as we, like the Israelites here, seek to just pass through, again, look at verse 17, as we seek to just pass along the king's highway, the king of king, Jesus Christ, and we want to walk in the spirit and, and walk in the way of the Lord Jesus, and I am the way and as we try and pass along the king's highway and walk in the spirit and serve the Lord, and we, we have that same heart. Look, I don't want to turn to the right. I don't want to turn to the left. I just want to stay on the king's highway. I tell you this, that when we resolve to do that as God's people, the flesh is always going to resist that. And the flesh is always going to try and threaten that and come against that and intimidate that and say, absolutely not. I'm not going to help you on the king's highway. In fact, I want to do what I can to get you off the king's highway. And, and there will always be that tension. Whenever you choose to determine to walk on the king's highway and not turn to the right or turn to the left and you say, Lord, I just want to walk on your path and serve you. Listen, you are going to experience resistance. And you're even going to experience, to some extent, mistreatment and opposition and coming against you and there's going to be a resistance and a warfare spiritually in the sense where the enemy will seek to threaten and intimidate and do what he can to keep you from walking on the king's highway and so uh, just quite an interesting little picture here as we see this playing out historically how 
In much the same way, we find that the flesh does not want us to pass and the flesh will seek to refuse us and to resist us in those kind of things. Verse 22 then goes on to say, Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation now journeyed from Kadesh and they came to Mount Hur. And the Lord then spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hur by the border of the land of Edom. So again, they're on the border of Edom now because they haven't been granted passage through. And at this point, God now speaks verse 24, and it's now time for Aaron to pass off the scene just as his sister Miriam had did. Notice verse 24, God says, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. That's God's way of saying death for someone who's a believer. Notice, not the cessation of existence just being gathered to his people. God doesn't say his life is over, his life, you know, nothing, that's the end, it's all over. God says, no, he's just going to be removed from this existence and he's going to be gathered to his people. What a beautiful reminder of how death for the child of God, it's not the ceasing of life and consciousness and existence, it's just transitioning from one dwelling place to another dwelling place. And, And here he says, tell Aaron that his time has come to be gathered to his people for he shall not enter the land which I've given to the children of Israel because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Now that reflects back on what we studied last time in chapter 20 verse 1 through 13 there where the whole situation where Moses misrepresented the Lord remember when he struck the rock when God had only told him to speak the rock and uh, speak to the rock and it seems that Aaron somehow had responsibility collectively in this because here now we see God referencing Aaron as a part of this process again we're not told more details but in the same way Moses and Aaron were not permitted to enter into the promised land and lead them in he says verse 25 again remember Aaron was the high priest critical role and spiritual leader in that day the high priest so Aaron is about to now die and be gathered to his people but that ministry must continue onward so he says verse 25 take Aaron and Eliezer his son Bring them up on Mount Hur, up onto the mountain area, and strip Aaron of his garments and put those priestly garments, remember the ones we studied, the different garments, the special garments they would wear, the the priests, and especially the high priest to identify them for their role. For Aaron, again, notice, shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded and they went up the mount to Mount Hur in the sight of all the congregations. So again, there's something of this where the congregation is watching this transition happen where Aaron is now going to pass off the scene and a new high priest would step into the role, a new era, if you would, where this man Eliezer would take over. And Eliezer becomes quite a godly high priest you know Aaron had his struggles God, Eliezer will see is quite a godly man as this next generation steps into this role and takes over the responsibilities uh, of his father verse 28 so Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and he put them on Eliezer his son and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain and then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain Now, when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel, notice, mourned for Aaron for 30 days. So for a month, uh, there's a grieving period. And notice that that we see this throughout the Old Testament where, where God understands the pain of death. And for 30 days, for a month, it says, again, it wasn't, they got three personal days off of work. For 30 days, 
God allowed them to grieve. Again, keep in mind, think of, put yourself in Moses' sandals again for this moment. Don't you know, allow the, the, the pathos of the story and the emotion to be taken out of it by just reading it in a cursory sense. His sister just died at the beginning of the chapter. Now here, Moses then went through the disappointment of making the blunder that he did and here's he's not going into the promise then. And now, again, after that major mistake, now he's told it's, it's time for Aaron who had been by Moses' side. Remember, Moses was afraid to go and lead the people in the initial uh, you know, efforts to shepherd the children of Israel and to lead them out of Egypt. And God said, Moses, okay, if you're that afraid, then I'll send Aaron with you. Remember, and Aaron came and became Moses' voice and God would tell Moses what to say and then he would tell Aaron. It seems somehow Aaron would, would speak to the people and they served side by side. And now there's the separation that comes. And, and no doubt, again, you know, what kind of you know, conversations and emotions took place as, as God tells Aaron in advance that he's going to die and Moses needs to be the one to inform him. And, and I think to myself, wow, I mean, what must that have been like to go up onto the mountain and for Moses to turn and say, uh, Aaron, the reason I brought you up here wasn't for a camping trip. <laughs> if you wondered why I asked Eliezer to come too, I, I kind of need to, to share something with you. Um, uh, it's time to be gathered to your people and you're not going back down. And I think to myself, wow, how critical and important is it to be ready to die? To, to realize, I mean, what, what would that be like? I mean, if today God said to you, uh, today your life's done, you're going to be gathered to your people. Are you okay with that? With where you're at and the way that you're living, are you okay to say, okay, Lord, I, I'm ready. I'm ready eternally and, and I'm ready and I'm okay with, with where I'm at and where things are. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, my house is, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. And, and what an interesting thing. Certainly, we don't all get that moment of awareness. But as they, as they dialogue with us, embracing each other, brothers, you know, saying their goodbyes to each other. And how deeply emotional that is. You know, if you've said goodbye to a loved one as they're slowly beginning to you know, digress their health and you realize it soon and maybe you're waiting by the bed of a loved one. How many times that not only have I, you know, done that a few times with some of my own loved ones, but sat with people while you watch that process and they're saying their goodbyes and just waiting for those hours there as someone expires. And again, I, I can't help but to wonder what kind of conversations happen. You know, did, did Aaron say something along the lines of Moses? I just, there's one thing I just still got to get off my chest. That golden calf thing, I really made it. I admit it. Because you remember what Aaron said? Well, I just threw the gold in the fire and this calf jumped out. Remember? And I wonder if it, Aaron, I just need to get this off my chest, Mo. Okay, I made the golden calf. I really did. I molded it myself. I just need to get that off my chest before I perish. But this amazing scene here as Aaron now dies. But I want you to see this. There comes the ending and the cessation of Aaron's priesthood and ministry and notice that men die and men depart and men come to their end but God's work and God's ministry continues onward because Eliezer at this point takes up the mantle of the high priesthood and continues onward and, and again this as we look at this we've talked about before how these things become pictures and types of Christ and how ultimately the Bible even teaches us how Jesus is our great high priest the high priest as a mediator in his role was a picture and a type of Christ. And, and interesting here, there were multiple human high priests, but the superiority of Jesus as our great high priest is he never dies. He never dies. 
In fact, listen to what Hebrews 7 says in relation to that. Hebrews 7 says this, By so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, the superiority of Jesus' high priesthood is so much more wonderful than anything that an earthly spiritual leader and high priest could provide because in that day, let's say you had a really great high priest. And I mean, he was a great example and he taught the word of God to you and you looked up to him and you could learn from him and he ministered to your needs and God used him in a special way and you got really attached to him. And I'm sure those things happen. It's a, it's a wonderful, healthy thing. But then there came a time where he'd die and he would be taken out of your life. And all of a sudden, that man that helped so much spiritually is not there anymore. Now, all of a sudden, you've got to acclimate to a new spiritual leader, to a new high priest. The wonderful thing is, is though that would happen and that would be challenging, but this guy didn't, he didn't, but that guy knew everything about me, man. He knew all my flaws and struggles and situation and he was so great to help me because he knew me so well and all I'd been through and he was such an assistance and this person doesn't even know me now. Or this person, he's not like him. Well, listen, here's the wonderful thing. Jesus is a great high priest and he will never die. He'll never die. Because he has an unchangeable, everlasting life, he's a wonderful mediator between us and God as our great high priest because he's never prevented from continuing onward in his ministry to you. That's why he should be your chief reliance and let him be the chief shepherd and overseer of your soul. Yes, does God use us in each other's lives? Certainly. But don't ever let your dependence become too much upon a person spiritually because people come and go. They may come and go for many different reasons. It doesn't have to be something wrong. Sometimes God just remove somebody out of our life or they move on or they transition but if our focus and our connection is upon Christ as our great high priest it doesn't matter if they go and it doesn't matter if you go or are transitioned here or there Jesus is always still there and he says he's able to save to the uttermost the idea is to the vanishing point all the way to the end he can carry us through because he knows you, he knows your weaknesses, your struggles, and he is able to help you and minister and lead you through your spiritual life all the way to the end here. So we now have this transition. Eliezer, now the next high priest, takes over for Aaron at this point, the next generations beginning to assume their roles. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, And the king of Arad, or Arad, that's now southern Israel it's referring to, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. And then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So as the word is beginning to spread around that this nation of Israel is moving through the wilderness and that their God has told them that he's going to give them this Canaanite territory, word is passing around the land and now this particular king of the south here, this Canaanite king, recognizing that, says, you know what, hey, I'm not going to wait and sit back and be passive. I'm going to take the initiative here and he steps forward and assaults or attacks the nation of Israel 
and begins to take some of them as prisoners. So he launches an attack and he takes some of them prisoner uh, at this point. Now, again, much like the enemy of our soul, he's not always going to sit back passively. And as you're on your spiritual journey and as you're seeking to get into the promised land and the promised life of the Spirit that God wants for you to experience, the enemy's not always going to sit back passive and wait for you to step forward. At times, when he sees that you're on the border, he's going to launch spiritual attacks against your life. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of, of wickedness and, and heavenly places that are going to come against us. And the enemy wants to do this, to launch attacks among the people of God and to take people prisoner, to take people captive. Paul ultimately tells Timothy that uh, there are people, he says, in uh, 2 Timothy says that the enemy has taken captive prisoner to do his will. And he tells Timothy, look, there are people like that and, and pray for them and reach out to them if perhaps God would grant them repentance, that they would be liberated from having been taken captive and imprisoned by the enemy and brought in a sort of spiritual prisoners of war. So here, now some of the Israelites have been captured. Verse 2, So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, they say, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Verse 3, And the Lord listened to their voice, to the voice of Israel, and delivered up the Canaanites, who had just done this to them, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah, or utter destruction. The Hebrew literally indicates devoted over to the Lord. So they cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, what do we do? We need your help. Again, they're learning to become a military people. They're still growing at this point in time. So they cry out to the Lord. And I just love the way verse 3 listens. They just pray a very simple direct prayer to the Lord. And I love verse 3. The Lord listened to their voice and brought deliverance. Isn't it wonderful that we can call upon a God who has such power and is in control of so many things and it's not necessarily the perfection of our prayer or even quite honestly, let's be very candid, that we even ask the right things all the time. But that he sees our situation and he knows our need and he compassionately listens to our voice. I mean, truth be told, sometimes we can't even get people to listen to our voice. We can't get politicians to listen to our voice. We can't get our boss to listen to our voice. We can't even get our spouse or our kids to listen to our voice. And yet God, God listens to your voice. God wants to hear your voice. And God wants to hear your cries and your concerns. And maybe there are people that are in prison that you say, Lord, Lord, this is a battle. I know this is a battle. And Lord, they should not be in prison like that. And Lord, they're precious to us. They're our family. They're our people. Lord, set them free, please. Lord, what? And, and, and how amazing to think that God answers our cry and God listens to our voice and he aids us in our battles that we go through as we have to fight in conflicts at sometimes and battle through things in life. Well, verse 4, look what happens. God gives them this victory and then they now journey, it says, from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea, which means they're now going south at this point. And it says they to go around the land of Edom. Remember, Edom said, you can't pass through here. So again, remember that glory cloud that led them around? No doubt they're thinking, look, okay, let's at least keep trying to go north somehow to get up and around. But all of a sudden, they probably want to go north and the glory cloud starts to go south back towards the Red Sea. 
So God's, they want to go north and God's leading south. He's leading them toward the Red Sea at this point to go around Edom and the soul of the people, when this started to happen, look at it, it says became very discouraged on the way. So here's what happens. At this point in time, as this is going on, God begins to lead them not the way they expect it should go. God begins to lead them in a way that involves the long way, the long circular route all the way around, which would be a much longer journey and not the shortcut. Now, I don't know about you, but I like the shortcut. (laughs) Why do I want to go the long way if there's a shortcut? I can see the shortcut right there. Isn't that good stewardship? It saves time. It saves resources. It saves energy. I want to take the shortcut. I want the shortcut to holiness. I want the shortcut to the spirit-filled life. I want the shortcut to victory and to experiencing the land flowing with milk and honey. Let's get rid of my enemies. I want the shortcut. And sometimes God doesn't give us the shortcut. Sometimes God leads south when we think he should lead us north and sometimes God leads us the long way in our journey for his purposes and for his reasons the most important thing listen is this is just follow God's leading even if God's taking you the long way trust that he knows what he's doing now here's the hard thing look what happens when the the cloud begins to lead south and all around Edom the long way the people got very discouraged and that's, that's a common experience. When, when we're going the way that we didn't think we were going to go or wanted to go, or when we're going the long way instead of the shortcut, that can be pretty discouraging. And you know what? That's understandable. And the people now, discouragement begins to set into their hearts, and sometimes we can get really, really discouraged in the depths of our soul on the way. Here's the thing that happens that's the mistake. They allow their discouragement to begin to cause them to get disillusioned and to get distracted. And ultimately, that discouragement in their soul is something they don't process properly and they begin to allow the discouragement to lead them in a downward spiral where they begin to sin and to complain and have ingratitude and question the love and the plan of God. And this is what we need to guard against because it's a common mistake. Watch what happens as they get very discouraged. The people then spoke against God and against Moses. He's always leading them the wrong way, right? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. (laughs) That was the manna, by the way that God provided every day miraculously so they would survive in the wilderness. Now, isn't this interesting? We say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Doesn't that kind of complaining and verbiage sound very familiar? We've seen it a lot of times. And keep in mind, who is this now? This is the next generation. This is the younger generation. Where did they learn that kind of stuff from? Why did you bring us out here to die in this wilderness? How come there's no food and there's no water? Where did, they, where did they get those statements, those ideas, those criticisms, those perspectives towards God and towards what he was doing and his plan and his care and even spiritual leadership and authority? Where did, where did they get that? They learned it from their parents. They embraced the perspectives that they saw and they observed and they heard that their parents had spiritually and now they're beginning to fall prey to the same things. 
And again, we see this transmission of influence here that many times much more is caught than is taught. And now they've caught this kind of same attitude and when they get discouraged, they regress back into the same things that their parents were so often guilty of. And now they're, again, you want to talk about an attitude of ingratitude? I mean, look, I mean, there's this sense of that they're entitled to something more. It wasn't that God wasn't caring or providing for them. That was never the case. But they're now in their distress, allowing it to take them down and to stumble and trip them up. And they become very, in a sense, in, you know, unthankful. They say, our soul loathes this worthless prayer. Boy, that, that's, that's pretty harsh towards this miraculous manna that God provided for them. Again, and it wasn't that God wasn't providing, they just didn't like the menu. God was providing the bread. They just didn't like the menu. They wanted something a little better. This isn't sufficient enough. We're entitled to more than this. We deserve, and again, that's so often our, our problem when we get you know, ungrateful and unthank you is for some crazy reason. And let's be very candid. I think as Americans, we probably struggle with this as Christians more than anybody. We just have this perspective that we're entitled to something. We are. It's called hell. We're entitled to something. Man, I just can't just give me... God, you can't just provide for me. I mean, PB&J, I deserve filet mignon. This bread? You're just going to give me bread? I mean, yeah, you're providing, but I want a little better menu than this. And again, whether it's something physical or, or you know, material or our spiritual life, many times this, again, this, and then we begin to question, and now they're in a sense interrogating Moses, and really it says speaking, notice verse 5, against God. Well, again, as many times before, the anger of the Lord is aroused towards this complaining spirit and this ingratitude. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. So these were poisonous serpents that was some form of a judgment of God that was released among them at this moment for their sin against the Lord in this way. And, and, and the consequence of their sin was bringing these fiery serpents. And it seems there was a burning uh, venom that came forth from these serpents that caused death in the people. Therefore, the people came to Moses, verse 7, understandably, and they start confessing, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So they say, Moses, pray that God will take away the serpents. Pray for us that he would release us from this judgment and, and take these things away from us because this was a terminal, in a sense, condition when they got bit by these serpents. It didn't just cause pain and difficulty. It was actually causing death. It was a terminal consequence and it's at this point, verse 8, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone, notice, who is bitten, who's inflicted with this judgment of these serpents, which was terminal, when he looks at that serpent on the pole, he shall live. So again, God provides a solution. It's his solution. It's a rather unusual solution if you think of it too. They say, take away the serpents, take away the plague and, and, and what's causing death. God doesn't do that. God leaves that in place because it was the consequence of their sin. So God doesn't remove the judgment or the consequence, but what God does is God says, here is a solution to experience my mercy and grace so that though you deserve death, you'll be spared of death 
and you can actually live instead if they simply do what? If they just look in faith to that serpent upon a pole, God said, I'll miraculously heal them. I'll miraculously touch them and though they deserve to die, they actually will live. Now, you can imagine as this is supplied by God as a solution that here people, some people would probably right away. Maybe some who are just simple hearted and desperate. Moses makes this and people are dying and he says, look, God said, God said, this was God's idea. Here's God's solution. God said, look to that pole over there with that serpent on it. And if you look to it in faith, God will heal you and you'll live instead of die. And some people said, hey, I'm desperate. And they will look and they would be healed. I guarantee you there were other people who heard about people who looked to the serpent and were miraculously healed who heard that and said, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That, are you kidding me? Look at some snake on a pole? That's so simplistic and childish and foolish and ridiculous. Just look. You tell me just God said that and if I just believe what God said and look over there, I'm going to be saved? I'm going to be healed? Death will be taken away from me, though I deserve death. And again, no doubt there were those who questioned it, who thought it was ridiculous, and probably people like Moses and other people who had already experienced the salvation and the healing of God were saying, would you just look? Just look. God did something so simple. There, That's God's solution. Don't question God's solution. Just embrace it. There it is. All you got to do, believe what God said, look at God's solution, and God will do that miraculous touch in your life and spare you. Now, there's something much deeper in this in that Jesus used this very account himself, John chapter 3, Jesus used this account to illustrate salvation in John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. Jesus said this, listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said this in John 3, 14 and 15. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So again, did God provide his own simple solution? It was his choice to provide that solution that they would look in faith. And if they just looked in faith, God would honor his promise and they would be spared from the death uh, consequence that was over their life. Yeah, but from God's perspective, seeing all the way down through eternity, God thought this is also going to be a really good illustration for Jesus when he talks to Nicodemus because as Jesus talked to this religious man Nicodemus who was just so religious utterly religious to the core rules and rituals and, and Jesus said to him but you're still missing something you are more religious than anybody in this community you're a leader in religion but you are still missing something in your soul. And Jesus began to speak to him about that he was missing spiritual life. He needed to be born again. And Nicodemus, remember, he was struggling with the whole thing. And Jesus said, look, in the same way, Nicodemus, it's so simple. It's so simple. In the same way that serpent was lifted up and if people looked to it, they were spared. He said, in the same way, with the Son of God, he was lifted up upon a cross. And by his death and his suffering, if you now look to that Look to Jesus as the solution in faith. You can be forgiven. And the consequence of death because of sin can be removed from your life. And he says that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So again, what an interesting picture of salvation how Jesus himself even refers to this account describing what would happen here. Well, look at verse 10. It now begins from verse 10 down through verse 
20 or so to describe some of the journeyings as they're moving around. It says, Now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Oboth, and they journeyed from Oboth and camped at Iji Abarim in the wilderness, which is east of Moab toward the sunrise. From there, notice, they then moved and camped in the valley of Zered. And from there again, they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. And therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, some unbiblical book that's not in the account of scripture, but it was something it seems that was a record in that day, this book of the wars of the Lord, where they recorded some of the accounts that happened militarily. Waheb and Sufra, the brooks of Arnon, and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. So this was some type of a war journal that they apparently kept in that day. We don't have any record of it anymore, but it recorded battles and victories that God gave to them. From there, verse 16, they then went to Beor, which is by the well where the Lord had said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. And then Israel, when God gave them water, that they sang, saying, spring up, O well. Splish, splash with him. I'm sorry. I just had to. We're almost done here. Keep me engaged for another few moments. Spring up, O well, all you who sing to it. The well, the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. So they sang this song responsibly the day that the leaders broke ground and actually dug for the people to bring water for them to drink. In the wilderness, they went to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahiel, and Nahiel to Baamoth, and Baamoth in the valley that is in the country of Moab, to the top of Pigzah, which looks down on the wasteland. So we have record here of some of their journeys around as they're moving through different territories. Again, many of these locations mean nothing to us, uh, historical locations. But I will say this, God records this in his word by his spirit, and again, as I said before, God never wastes space. And if anything, what do we draw from that? Well, I would say this. In the same way that God always was aware of exactly where the children of Israel were at as they journeyed around, God is always aware of exactly where you are at on your journey. As you move from this job to this job, and this place to this place, and as you move from this season to that season, and as you move from this situation to that situation, whether it is hour by hour, day by day, or month by month, or the different years and seasons, God is aware of exactly where you're at on your journey. He sees where you're at. He knows what's going on at that location and that situation. And notice that making progress rather than staying stagnant and comfortable is a part of the spiritual life. Journeying. They were moving. It's never good as a child of God to be sedentary. It's always good to be moving. The Bible talks of a walk with the Lord. And we're going to be fighting battles like they did along the way. We're going to receive the Lord's provision at times when we're in dry seasons. The Lord will put a well there and a little oasis to refresh us at times when we need it. And our heart is to keep journeying and to keep singing and worshiping the Lord in those moments, even as they did when he touched and helped in special ways. Verse 22 or 21 says, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. Sound familiar? They now try this once again. We will not turn aside to your fields or vineyards. We won't drink your water from your wells, verse 22. 
Again, we just want to pass on the king's highway until we've passed through your territory. But Sihon, this other king now, who wasn't even a relative as well, would not allow Israel to pass through. So Sihon gathered his people together and he went out against Israel in the wilderness and he came to Jehaz and he fought against Israel. So he actually engaged them militarily. He didn't just show military force. He actually brought an attack and he actually launched a conflict against them. Verse 24, notice, but Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of the land from Arnon to Jabuk as far as the people of Ammon for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So in this situation, Israel's attacked and now they engage militarily. Remember with Edom, they ask for permission. No, no, they come out, they show the sword, they show like they're threatening to attack and what does Israel do? They turn away. God doesn't tell them to engage, so they avoid the conflict. This time, notice, God doesn't work in formulas. This time, same story, same situation, and this time they engage. This time they engage the conflict, and God gives them victory by the edge of the sword, and the end they win. I say that for this reason. Sometimes we go through similar patterns in life, and we're prone to think, well, this is what I did last time I had this situation. Look. There's a time not to engage and sometimes there's a time to engage. And it's important that we stay sensitive in each situation that we're in and not create formulas for our spiritual life. But listen to what God's telling you to do this day in this situation. Not how did it happen last time when I was at the same situation. Here they engage by the edge of the sword they defeat their enemy. And again, what does the Bible tell us? The word of God is, it's the sword of the spirit. Interesting, they defeat their enemy with the edge of the sword. That's how you're going to defeat and I'm going to defeat my enemies by utilizing the word of God, obeying his word, taking his word as our answer to how we address situations and enemies that we face. Verse 25, so Israel took all these cities and dwelt in those cities, the Amorites and Heshbon and its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land from his hand as far as Arnon. So it seems that uh, this particular uh, people, Heshbon and the city of Sihon, that they had fought and defeated Moab prior to this time that Israel came into the area. And let me just say, that would be a pretty impressive victory that they had conquered the Moabites, the Amorites had overthrown them prior to this time and taken his land, and now the Israelites have conquered the people who conquered Moab. So what they do here, verse 27, is they basically take their victory song and they sing it back to them and they add an extra phrase on the end as they recount their victory song of their victories over Moab. They sing back the same song to them, but look at verse 30, but we have shot at them, referring to the Amorites. In other words, you defeated the Amorites, the Moabites, but now we've shot at them, the Amorites, and Heshbon has perished as far as Dibun, and the waste as far as Napha, which reaches to Mediba. So they basically steal their victory song and redeem it for themselves as they conquer a people who had just had a pretty powerful and impressive victory. So here's what's happening at this season historically. As they're now starting to actually engage military conflicts, what's the Lord doing? They're just outside the promised land. What's going to happen when they get in the promised land? There's territory to possess. There's places to occupy. There's going to be enemies and battles to fight. So what's God doing? He's training and teaching them 
how to fight battles and to rely upon the Lord's assistance for victory in the obstacles and battles they face and to learn how to defeat and overcome their enemies with God's help and God's leading. God's bringing them through a time of preparation. He's preparing them for the next season so they can go in and they can conquer in Canaan. And look, let me say this this evening. Don't miss the lessons of preparation in your life. What God is doing in your life now is not just something He's doing now, it's also because He knows what's ahead of you in the next season. And so the battles you're fighting now, the obstacles you're facing, God is using those things, they're not in vain, to get you prepared for the next step, for the next season, because He knows what's around the corner and He's often preparing us and training us to get us ready for the next step. Let's finish the last few verses of our chapter here. So, so Moses sent to spy out Jazir, took its villages, drove out the Amorites who were there, and they turned and they went up by the way to Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, and he and all his people to battle at Edri. And the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him. There's a reason why. God says, for I've delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land, and you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until there was no survivor left of them and they took possession of his land. So as they come to this next area, Og of Bashan, it says, comes out against them, verse 33, and God has to tell them, verse 34, don't be afraid. Do not fear, I've delivered them into your hand. Now, why would God say that? Well, very simply this. In Deuteronomy chapter three, it tells us of Og of Bashan and his sons and these people that they had, it says, iron beds 14 foot by 16 foot. Now that's a king size bed. 14 foot by 16 foot. That's a huge people. Og of Bashan was a massive, very intimidating individual. Apparently there was some genetic giant-like code 14 foot by 16 foot was this guy's bed. No wonder they were afraid. That was an intimidating obstacle. So they were genuinely afraid and God therefore says to them, look, I know that looks very intimidating and that should be very intimidating and I know why you should be terrified because that's something that you're no match for. But what God says to them is you don't be afraid. One reason, because I'm with you. I'm with you. And you know what? Tonight, perhaps the Lord is wanting to dispel the fears of whatever huge giant you're facing in your life that is causing genuine fear and wants to say to you, look, I know the odds are very intimidating and that's genuinely scary. But don't be afraid because I'll be with you and I'll give you the victory in what you're facing. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's turn our hearts back to the Lord and worship as we spend some time in his presence.